You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Our text this morning is short. It's only two verses. Uh, These two verses come at the climax of a uh, longer uh, argument being made by Paul. It's a very complex, uh, wonderful argument that, that he is making that, that justification, this, the, the idea of getting right with God, the, the question is, is, does getting right with God involve uh, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone? Right, just trusting alone in the work of Jesus Christ alone? Or does it involve that plus obedience? Our obedience to the law, and the, the big issue uh, at the time was circumcision. There were Christians, early Christians, who thought that, that non-Jewish people who came to the faith in Jesus not only had to trust in Jesus and his work, but also had to obey the law, which included, if you were a man, to get circumcised. Um, that, was the, that was the issue. And, and for Paul, it, it was a, this was an issue upon which the gospel uh, balanced. I mean, if... if if you added anything to the gospel, as far as Paul was concerned, the gospel was destroyed. Well, these two verses we're going to read uh, come at the, really are the climax of, of that uh, argument that Paul's making. Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed in the bulletin. And I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to Christ. Excuse me, live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh, excuse me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Merciful Father, drive home the essential truth in these two verses here. Drive, drive that essential truth into the very core of who we are and to how we think and how we live. And we pray that in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins was the principal behind uh, an atheist campaign uh, about 12 years ago or so, 2008-2009, uh, that came to be known as the Atheist Bus Campaign. It involved buses uh, driving around London, and they're, they're everywhere, right? Putting, putting signs on those buses announcing the following. 
There is probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, let's for the moment ignore the weaselly and arrogant denial of God's existence there. There's probably no God. And let's ignore the snarky implication uh, that God wrecks joy, that God somehow stands in the way of joy, right? Get rid of God and you can stop worrying and start enjoying your life. I mean, those are two real problems with that statement. But I want to talk about another problem. Uh, another way that that statement is, is both untrue and disingenuine. Disingenuine disingenuous. And um, I, I read a, a Christian, a British Christian uh, writer who was uh, around in those days. He actually saw those buses. And, 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 this, and this British Christian reflected, and I think he's right, that another thing that that statement wrongly communicates is that the default human state is one where you are experiencing enjoyment. Right? Stop worrying and, and just, you know, start enjoying. Um, and, and, he, and, and this British writer, and I think he's absolutely right, says, you know, obviously, you, you know, jo- enjoyment, joy is, is, is a part of life, but it is just one part of life. And... and and, and to suggest, as this does, that you know, uh, if, if uh, that, that that the normal state or our default state, what we should, where we should be all the time, is is enjoying life. Well, it doesn't square with reality. It certainly doesn't square with my life. I don't know about yours. Uh, of course, there's enjoyment, and there are other positive things like love and and hope and excitement. Uh, But there is also in my life, and I know yours, fear, anger, envy, resentment, jealousy, depression, worry, despair, discouragement, guilt, shame, self-condemnation. In fact, it often seems that day to day, week to week, as I look back on it, that, that those negative parts of our lives outweigh the positive. Now, I'd love to, to agree with the statement that uh, n- not that you get rid of God and that, or start enjoying, but that, that we could, you know, enjoy life all the time, but we can't and we don't. Why? Why don't we? Why do these, the negative emotional experiences that I've just described, why why do those seem to dominate? Well, here's Bob Dylan's answer, if you want, um, you know, not a great theologian, but a decent answer. Uh, Dylan sings, everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. 
Things are broken. <laughs> you know, we're broken. That the, and that's why we are experiencing things like anger and fear and envy and resentment, discouragement and despair. We're broken. And the Bible calls that brokenness of everything, including you and me, sin. Sin is that human tendency to mess things up. And we do it either often unintentionally, and sometimes we do it intentionally. The reality of sin can hit you in times of crisis. Like when you're facing uh, a broken marriage, when a career has cratered, uh, when what you thought was in control becomes an out-of-control addiction. All of a sudden you can be hit with the reality of of sin you can get you can hit it, get hit with it in those moments when despite all your rationalizing and all your self justification you come face to face with your own inner darkness has that happened to you those sort of quietly horrifying moments when you see the the hatred the the lust the joy of fail the the joy and the failure of others you you see that in yourself it's not a good time it's not a good moment and the reality of sin can hit you on those flat monotonous mind numbing days the same old same old days when there's no joy there doesn't seem to be any emotion you're just wondering if that's all there is Friends, sin separates you and me from God, and to the extent it separates you and me from God, it separates you and me from joy, from real joy, from hope uh, and love. So what do we do about it? What do you do about it? Would you be surprised if I, if I said that you really have only one option to deal with this? You have to die. Now, I don't mean dying in the physical sense. It's, it's more like my mom's recent uh, and, I think, ongoing experience. My mom is very much alive. But somehow, word got out. Well, I know how it got out. There were, there were in their church, which was their former church, was a very large church. There were two women named Carol Hamilton. Well, one Carol Hamilton died, not my mom. Uh, but, of course, a lot of people assumed that that was my mom who died. Uh, and, and so my dad has been getting sympathy cards in the mail. Sort of an interesting phenomenon. Mom uh, has the uh, rare opportunity to, to uh, you know, look over Dad's shoulder as uh, as he's reading these sympathy cards, and 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 she has that rare privilege of reading what people are saying about her when they think she's dead. Right, sort of like going to your own funeral. Remember, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn did that when they were uh, missing and presumed dead, and they had a funeral. Uh, for them and uh, Tom and Huck 
snuck into that funeral. Well, it's not exactly the same thing, but but listen, friends, if you want to hear and receive what God says about you and what God has done for you, you also need to die, even though you keep on living. And that's what these two verses are about. It's, it's, it's a little bit strange. It's a little bit mysterious. It's, it sounds paradoxical. But friends, this is essential Christianity. This is the Christian life in two verses. I, I've, I enrolled in an online course for my own for my own benefit, and uh, I, the course, I, I, the, the reason I enrolled in that course was I was intrigued by the title. The title was The 15 Essential Bible Verses. Now, I'm sure, you know, Christians are going to differ uh, about what those 15 essential Bible verses might be. But I wanted to take uh, the class and see what this professor had to say. And one of his 15 essential Bible verses was Galatians 2, 19 and 20. This is is the Christian life uh, in two verses. So we're coming to the Lord's table. let's, Let's just unpack this real quickly under three points. Number one, you have to die. Number two, you have to live. And number three, you are deeply loved. First, you have to die. Uh, You know, I like the way one commentator puts it. He said, Jesus came to raise the dead, not to reform the reformable, and not to improve the improvable. We could do worse than remember that line because it's so easy, isn't it? It's certainly easy for me to sort of fall into functionally thinking that what Jesus is doing with me is merely improving the improvable. Reforming the reformable. But no, Jesus came to raise the dead. Paul says in verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. Now what he means, that's an odd saying, but what he, what he means there is that, listen, once I understood what the law of God required, then I understood, then I, then I began to understand, I realized that trying to justify myself, trying to get right with God, by obeying that law is both foolish and impossible. And if you and if you you know want if you if you don't know what God's law requires, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And really what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is is an exposition of God's law. He's, he takes Old Testament law and says Here's, here's, here's what it means. Here's what it looks like to live that out. And if you read that with, a, with an open, an honest mind, right, the Sermon on the Mount will crush you because you can't do it. Trying to obey your way into God's favor by obeying the law is, is like uh, the, the Roomba, which uh, one of my kids owns. Uh, you know, the Roomba, the, those robot uh, vacuum cleaners? 
that sort of on its, on its own, you know, vacuums the house. Um, they kind of frighten me, so I'm, we don't have one, but um, uh, kids do. Uh, and th- th- there was a time when that Roomba, with, with all of its robot heart, was, was vacuuming uh, uh, the, 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 all of the floors in the house. But all the while, what it was doing was spreading the dog throw up that it had rolled through and was uh, spreading that all over the house. That's us. I know it may be hard to admit, but that's us. You know, we work hard and spiritually we only make things worse. In terms of coming, right? We're talking about getting right with God, coming to God. What Christians call justification, what Christians might call salvation, right? So the law woke up Paul to the, the impossibility of keeping it. And so he died to it. I mean, he's, I, 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 I'm, I can't, I, the law can't speak to me because I keep, there's nothing I can do. So what, so what it also did, what the law also did in, in waking him up to the fact that it was foolish and impossible to try to keep it to get right with God is that it then drove him to Jesus. Right as as the law keeper for him and as the penalty payer for him, he goes on to say he was crucified with Jesus. Crucified with is in the Greek one word. It's it's you might translate it co-crucified. Right. And Christians, that's you. If, if you call on Jesus' name, you, along with Paul, have been crucified with Jesus. You've been co-crucified with Jesus. In a, in a very real sense, you are dead, at least dead to the law. Right? Think about it. It's true in, you know, in secular life. The law has no jurisdiction over dead people. It can't force you to obey. You're dead. So you and Paul have died to the law as something you've got to do to be right with God. Christianity, friends, is the end of religion as we know it, right? If you think of religion as uh, I've got to obey and then I'll be right with God, then I'll be able to approach the divine, that's religion. But Christianity is the exact opposite. It's Jesus who gets you right with God by his law obedience and his penalty-paying death. And then you obey the law, right? The law doesn't just go away. The law's here. It's, but now it's our way to say thank you. It's not our way to get right. Man, but we are so hardwired and conditioned to, to, to do that, to justify ourselves by what we do, that it's hard to accept the obedience of another for you. It's hard to die into Jesus' obedience. And we're so committed to this sort of self-salvation 
even Christians, right? We're, we're, I mean, the, the, the old man just rises up, they, right? Our old nature rises up, and, and, uh, and sometimes we find ourselves thinking, and, and this is, you know, if you find yourself thinking, you know, I've, I blow it up, up against the Sermon on the Mount, my life is a wreck. Therefore, you know, I can't believe God accepts me. I can't believe uh, God loves me. You see, you see what you're doing, right? You, you've, you've subtly shifted over to, to salvation by your law obedience. And we're so committed to it that we'll even adopt other laws, right? Like the law of approval. Making yourself good, making yourself worthy by, by getting the favorable opinions of other people. Or you might default to the law of performance. That's a big one for me. Making yourself good and worthy by successfully performing. Getting recognized for it. Having your work earn success as my culture defines success. We all, there, there are some Christians doing that right now. It's, it's one of my struggles. And then there are people here who aren't Christians who are doing that right now. I mean, that's, but friends, let me just say it's a fool's errand. Right? What if you don't get the approval you seek? What, what then? Worse, what if you do? Right? It, never, it never lasts. It morphs. It always devolves into the question, what have you done for me lately? You have to keep earning the, the, that approval. Uh, what if you don't perform up to your expectations? What if you don't perform in such a way that that you succeed as you think of success or as the culture thinks of success, then where are you? Worse, what if you do? Right? You discover that the glow of achievement, the glow of performance, the glow of, of, uh, of success uh, as measured by our culture wears off quickly. It doesn't change you. You're still living with you. So, before we go on to the next one, real quick, don't do what I always do when I, li- when I myself listen to sermons, and that's turn things into imperatives. I'm always doing that. There's some of you out there right now going, I'm going to resolve to die. I'm going to die to all my self-salvation efforts. No, this is not an imperative, friends. In, in the Greek, these are indicatives. Right? This is not calling on you to do something. This is something that is done to you. When Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, that's perfect tense, which means it happened in the past, it has continuing force in the present, and it's passive, which means it was done to you. So don't put this, you know, don't put this on a to-do list. Don't make this another thing you have to do to get right with God. If you call on the name of Jesus, you have been crucified with Him. You're dead to the law. Whatever shape that law takes. Second, you have to live. 
Paul says three things about followers of Jesus, living as followers of Jesus here. First, in verse 19, you see that? He says, when you die to the law, you're able to live to God. Or we would probably say, live for God. I mean, I, think, I, I don't think that there's, there's much difference. If you're obeying the law, listen, if you're obeying the law to get right with God, if, if, if for you, whether you're a Christian or not, if you've sort of fallen into this way of thinking that God's only going to love me, he's only going to accept me if I, if I behave to a certain level, then, then when, as you're working to, to do that, uh, you, you are, you're working for yourself. Right? It's a completely selfish enterprise. Everything you do is about you. It's about, it's about doing what you need to do to get God's blessing for you. But when you've been co-crucified with Christ, and every one of you Christians has been, what Paul is reminding us here is that there's now nothing between you and God. Right? There, there isn't some hurdle you, you, you have to jump over, some law you have to obey to be right with him. Uh, you, so you now don't have to slavishly work to get his approval, because you have it. So now you get to do the law to say thank you, to show your, to show your appreciation and your love uh, to God for what he has done for you. That's the first thing. When you die to the law, you're able to live for God. Second, verse 20. After Paul says he's been crucified with Christ, he says it's, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, a lot of mystery here, I know. And, um, but what this is saying, in essence, is that, is that when we when we come to faith in Jesus, right? When God calls us through His Spirit into, into faith with Jesus and crucifies us to the law as a way of salvation and throws us onto Jesus as the way of salvation, what that does is put you in, in such a close symbiotic relationship with the living Jesus by the Holy Spirit, that it's as if you and Jesus are one person. It's that close. You know, and Paul knew of what he was speaking, right? He learned this in a dramatic and unexpected way. Um, Before he was a Christian, right before he was a Christian, um, Paul, who was then known as Saul, right, was, was a devout Pharisee. And he was persecuting Christians. He was arresting Christians. And he was on his way to arrest Christians in Damascus, in Syria. And, and the crucified and now risen Lord Jesus knocks him in the dirt on that Damascus road. And the first thing that Jesus says to him when, as, as he's laying in the dirt is a question. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And I love Paul's response, which is, who are you? Paul knew who he was persecuting. He was persecuting men and women who had joined this upright, you know, this uprising, this this upstart sect 
that was worshiping Jesus Christ, and he was and he he was persecuting them for sure. Um, but the unbelievably lovely thing that Jesus communicates here in this confrontation with Paul is that what Paul was doing to those early Christians, he was doing to Jesus. Paul wasn't, he was persecuting them, but more fundamentally, more importantly, he, at the, by persecuting them, he was persecuting Jesus. Why? Because Jesus lives in us. So friends, as you're going through your life and with all of the challenges uh, that it brings, doesn't that reality bring you some comfort? Doesn't it tend to take away your fear? It's the power of presence, right? Jesus is present with you. He feels what you feel. And whatever you're going through, He is with you. And the third and final thing that that Paul says here about living as a follower of Jesus, also in verse 20, is that the dynamic principle, the whole engine of, of this living as a follower of Jesus Christ is faith. And not just faith, faith in the Son of God, faith in Jesus. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. When it comes to getting right with God, the way you do that is to trust in Jesus. Not your works, not all your effort. Trust in Jesus' works. Trust in His effort. His law-obeying life, His penalty-paying death, His ratifying resurrection, His affirming ascension. So, what or who are you trusting? Are you trusting today in Jesus? Or are you trusting in yourself, trying to carve out a life of meaning and significance without Jesus? My fellow Christian friends, you know, you and I live by faith. Trusting alone in Jesus Christ alone. That is what brings us to God. That is what makes us acceptable to God. That is how we get through every day. Trusting alone in Jesus Christ and His work alone. What's it look like? Don't make it mystical. Don't make it magical. It's, it's, it's not a magical mystery tour. Living by faith in Jesus is, is pretty real. It's just, it's just down and dirty, and it's pretty simple. It looks like prayer. It looks like regularly worshiping. It looks like Bible reading. It looks like stepping out and doing whatever God has called you to do and doing it for His honor, for His glory, knowing that behind the work you do, whether that's at an office or whether you're at home with children, whatever you're doing, it is, it is Jesus who is at work in you for God's pleasure and your good. It's, it looks like doing 
the right thing, the biblical thing, even when it's hard, because you're doing it for Jesus. It looks like loving and caring for those who don't love and care for you. It looks like putting the interests of others in front of yourself. I said it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. But that's what living by faith in Jesus looks like. How do you do that? Right? How do you find the the power, the motivation to every day live by faith in Jesus? The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Well, the answer is our third and last point, you are deeply loved. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, please make that personal today, okay? Say that to yourself. Say it as you take communion because that's really what the bread and the wine is saying to you. Jesus is saying to you through the bread and the wine, I love you and I gave myself for you. Do you feel the power in that? Right? It's kind of like marriage. I mean, marriage is one of the, I think, the best examples I can give. You know, if I know Linda loves me, I can pretty much handle everything the world throws at me. Pretty much. Right? I, I, because, why? I mean, what makes me uh, able to handle um, pressure, criticism, failure. It's knowing that at the end of the day, I'll be with one who loves me, despite my imperfections, despite my unlovability, despite my failures. There's incredible strength in that. But if I were ever to doubt Linda's love for me, and, and you know, there have been those moments, right, when we've had a fight, and I go off to work with that fight unresolved, I can't even work, right? I, it, if, if, if there was any any reason, if there's any chink in the armor of God's, or of, of Linda's love for me, it makes me, really handicaps me in my ability to, to work, to take failure, to, to handle failure, to take criticism, because I realize it's her love that strengthens me and sustains me. Well, look, if that's true in, in a marriage, then how much more true is it in life when the truth of this passage is that the Son of God loves you. And He proved that love by giving Himself up over to death for you so that uh, ultimately you can live beyond your dying. Friends, there's incredible fear-shattering, risk-accepting, perspective-producing power in knowing that you have been loved by Jesus, you are loved by Jesus, and that he gave himself for you. I'll close with this, and then we'll go to the table. I, I just want you to know 
what I've, I've been beginning to experience a little again um, as, I've, as I've been reflecting on this verse for s- several weeks now. There's real freedom in being a dead person. Real freedom. Being dead to God's law, being dead to, to our culture's laws, right? Being dead to God's law that you can't keep but, be, but that Jesus kept for you. Being dead to the judgment of your peers or your culture about your importance, your significance, your value, your success, your failure. Listen, I'm dead to those things. You're dead to those things. Those things don't control you anymore. We're, you are dead to them in terms of any judgment on your value and your worth, which comes from where? Your relationship to the living Son of God who loves you and gave Himself for you. And last, just in very similar language, he, earlier in Galatians, Galatians 1.4, Paul uses the same language he picks up here. And he says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. There's, that, there's the, the tie-in. He gave himself for our sins. Now he's not talking about the motive, which is his, was his love for us. Now there in Galatians 1.4, he talks about the, one of the results of that. He says, he gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. I don't need to tell you that there is a lot of evil present right now in the age that we are living in. And we have seen it in spades in the last 18 months. And quite frankly, you know, a lot of us have responded to this present evil age, especially as it's manifested in, 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 these la- in this last year and a half, we've responded with, by being dominated by fear, beset by worry uh, and anxiety. Right? And I'm, and I'm speaking not... I'm, I'm speaking of Christians as well. Speaking to myself, right? It's been... It, a lot of Christians have responded to the present evil age with, with, with kind of a controlling, dominating fear, dominating anxiety, dominating anger. And you know what that's symptomatic of? It's symptomatic that we're not in that moment believing in the gospel. <laughs> right? We're, we've forgotten it. We've forgotten that Jesus loves us. He's given himself for us. He's already rescued us from this present evil age. That doesn't mean we have been, you know, raptured out of it. It doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities in it. But it mean it but it means it doesn't control you anymore. It doesn't dominate you anymore. It, it really can't touch you in terms of your destiny uh, as, as an individual. It gives you perspective so that you can face and, and the, the present evil age and work responsibly work through it. Friends, Jesus is with you so you can live for God even in this present evil age without reservation, without fear, and without worry. 
as we've been singing this morning, Jesus has done it all, and that's really what this bread and wine preaches to us today. This has been Christianity 101. You know, in some ways, you know, we, they're life coaches. That we, everybody, lots of people have life coaches. I'm not a life coach. But I am a pastor who, whose job it is in part to come alongside you and, and, and help you in the faith. And, and like any good coach, uh, you often go, you go back to the fundamentals. You drill in the basics. Because oftentimes our problems are, are the fact that we've sort of forgotten the fundamentals or we, we've gotten lazy about them. So I hope this has encouraged you. Let's pray. Father, uh, we're coming to your table now as we take it. I pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts and uh, build us up, convict us where we have gotten off the gospel, convict us where we have moved to other laws uh, like approval and, and uh, achievement and Just show us Jesus again, we pray. His name, amen. Matthew 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Friends, this meal is for those of you who call on the name of Jesus, right? If you're a member of New Life, you're a member of any other evangelical church where the gospel is faithfully preached. You're not under the discipline of the elders. Uh, This is not New Life's table. It's not Ted's table. It's Jesus' table. If you're a Christian, you come, right? If you're not a Christian, um, don't don't eat the bread and the wine. Uh, The sacrament is, is, is reserved for those who believe it's used by the Holy Spirit to to uh, build us up in the faith and and there are serious warnings about using this sacrament without belief so don't contradict your conscience if you don't believe this then don't participate in this meal but I would invite you to consider it and and to think about you know, if God's real, how are you gonna get how are you gonna get right with him? And I would put it to you that Jesus is the only answer, the only full and complete answer. And so use this time to if 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 you are so led to, to pray and and to consider to consider Jesus and and his love and his uh, life-giving death for his people. Um,
take your uh, bread and open the bread part of your little cup there. While you're doing that, I'll pray. Lord, we're going to eat this bread and wine now. I pray, Spirit, that you would come. And even as we have heard basic gospel, I pray that we would now ingest the basic gospel. And in so doing, Lord, that you would nourish us and strengthen us in our faith in Jesus, that we might live in this present evil age uh, without reservation in our faith in God and without fear or worry, knowing that you have rescued us. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And I now in his name tell you to take and eat in remembrance of Jesus. Let's eat together. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. The new covenant, a new oath-bound arrangement that had been promised all the way back in the Old Testament. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which has been poured out for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. And so I now, in the name of Jesus, ask you to lift your cup and drink the wine in remembrance of Jesus. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that we read today. That as your people, we have been crucified with Christ. And even though we live, the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, I pray that that verse would be on our minds and our hearts in the coming weeks. That we would celebrate our deadness our deadness to, to the self-salvation. Our deadness to the, to the valuation of the world. And our vibrant aliveness in the love and the acceptance of Jesus. Help us to live each day out of that faith, Father. Take away our fear. Take away our anger. Take away our frustration. Take away our anxiety. As we trust in the completeness of your work. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.